Welcome to the Canadian Sports Medicine Report podcast. The goal of this podcast is to inform, educate, and inspire sport and exercise medicine physicians, primary care providers, rehabilitation specialists, as well as medical and rehabilitation learners regarding topics that relate to sport and exercise medicine. We're going to achieve this by reviewing recent, relevant, and applicable research, interviewing national and international leaders in this emerging field of medicine, as well as learn about clinical and field-based cases in order to give our listeners salient and tangible knowledge to incorporate in their pursuit of expanding their knowledge with respect to sport and exercise medicine. This podcast is proudly affiliated with and endorsed by the Canadian Academy of Sport and Exercise Medicine. Your host for this podcast will be Dr. Rich Trenholm and myself, Dr. Lee Schofield, both of whom practice family medicine as well as sport and exercise medicine in both rural and urban locations. Today, we will be interviewing Dr. Paul Dorian, who's a staff cardiac electrophysiologist at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. He had been the Department Director, Division of Cardiology at the University of Toronto from 2007 to 2019, and he additionally is a Professor of Medicine at the University of Toronto. His research interests include resuscitation science, basic science research in advanced cardiac life support and atrial fibrillation, sport cardiology, arrhythmias in athletes, and clinical research on implanted devices, antiarrhythmic drugs, and quality of life in patients with arrhythmias. He is part of an expert group called Sport Cardiology Toronto, affiliated with the Heart and Stroke Lure Centre for Cardiology Research at the University of Toronto, and he is also part of the Sport Cardiology Clinic at St. Michael's Hospital. He has co-authored a number of recent papers surrounding how COVID-19 affects the cardiovascular system, particularly in athletes, and has been instrumental in helping to develop guidelines for the safe return of athletes to sport, especially from a cardiovascular point of view. Well, welcome, Dr. Dorian. Thank you so much. It's absolutely delighted uh, delighted to be speaking to colleagues across the country. This is great. And um, welcome back to all of our listeners. This is the first podcast that we've had uh, for a while, and we've rebranded to our uh, new new name and a new fancy logo that we've come up with. So hopefully, uh, hopefully this can be something that we can uh, enjoy on a more regular basis. So, you know, a little bit of background, obviously, COVID-19 has changed uh, our world in how we interact with each other, operate our learning and our business, but also how we as a, you know, active population play sports together at all levels. Um, Games have been cancelled, competitions have been modified or cancelled, and we might be actually seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. But there is still some emerging concerns about viral effects on the heart tissue that could impact athletes at all levels uh, with respect to their performance and their ability to resume their activities to the level of performance that they had been involved in the past. So, um, Dr. Dorian or Paul, you know, what are the main effects of COVID-19 on the cardiovascular system in both the acute and recovery phases? That's a great question. So if I may, just by introduction, just remind ourselves and the listeners that when we talk about the interaction between heart disease and the potential risk of sport, particularly endurance or high performance sport, we're talking about two possible consequences. One is that the physical demands or the cardiac demands of sport can worsen the existing phenotype. So whatever the heart disease is, Uh, the uh, demands of sport can worsen the manifestation of that activity. And the second, slightly different potential consequence that we're concerned about is the 
possibility that sport can precipitate an acute event, either a cardiac arrhythmia, for example, or in very rare cases, fortunately, sudden cardiac death or myocardial infarction. So let's get back to COVID. COVID is a viral illness that will occasionally affect the heart. The challenge we have in understanding the full spectrum uh, of COVID involvement of the heart is much of the data that we have comes from in-hospital patients that are generally older and they're sicker and they're often uh, very elderly or they have underlying heart disease or underlying morbidities that are much less likely to occur in athletes, things like obesity and diabetes and hypertension and so on. So much of what we know about the severe effects of COVID on the heart generally manifest as what we call COVID myocarditis, a viral inflammation of heart muscle, uh, sometimes occurring together with serious arrhythmias, occur in sick patients that are hospitalized often in an intensive care unit. Probably not uh, worth spending too much time talking about that because it's a very small subset and it's pretty unlikely that many of the athletes that you will all be, the, the listeners will be looking after have been hospitalized with severe COVID-19. Let's talk about patients that are likely not sick enough to be hospitalized. Most of them, most of them will have either asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic COVID infections, as is usually the case in younger, relatively healthier patients. And then the question is, what are the effects of the heart in that situation? Fortunately, we have some very recent evidence to suggest that the vast majority, probably 97% or so of all young individuals, this data comes from a set of professional athletes, average age 25 to 35. So they represent a sort of a typical younger athletic population. 97% of athletes that are studied very carefully in a recent publication had absolutely no abnormalities of any kind these are proven COVID-positive individuals. By no abnormalities, we mean we could not uh, establish any form of cardiac consequences of COVID, either by enzymatic release of troponin from the heart or abnormal ECG or abnormal echocardiograms. And even amongst the individuals that potentially had some minor cardiac involvement with COVID, only three in a thousand, so very small number, actually had what we believe is cardiac inflammation, which is myocarditis, which then is a separate topic. We can talk about it uh, if the group is interested, which might lead to restriction of sport or further follow-up. Do you mind, Dr. Dorian, um, just commenting on maybe at a, a, a broader concept around what exactly myocarditis is and how it can affect the heart? That's a fantastic question. So myocarditis is an inflammation of heart muscle. The uh, best way to make the diagnosis, which is, of course, not something that any sports physician is likely to be involved with, is a biopsy of the heart. We would only be doing this particular study uh, of biopsies of the heart in very ill patients in an intensive care unit in a tertiary teaching hospital. Sadly, of course, the, the uh, uh, best diagnosis of myocarditis is post-mortem in individuals who've died of acute cardiac inflammation. The condition is relatively rare, fortunately, uh, almost always caused by viruses. Uh, there are inflammatory diseases of the heart which are not easy to distinguish from myocarditis, typically, for example, cardiac sarcoid or other uh, inflammatory conditions, for example, with collagen vascular disease, they can cause inflammation of heart muscle, but those are 
relatively infrequent in everyday practice. There are many viruses which can affect the heart. Coxsackie B, uh, for example, is one of them. Uh, there are sometimes we never identify the particular virus. The most common situation we see pre-COVID is a youngish individual who comes to hospital with fever and chest pain and ECG signs of pericardial inflammation, ST segment elevation, an echocardiogram shows a thickened pericardium and uh, um, pericardial effusion. Uh, these patients generally get better relatively quickly. In the COVID era, uh, we are not certain whether COVID as a virus, the COVID-19 virus, is more likely to cause cardiac inflammation or whether it's just now a very commonly seen virus. It may well be the case that COVID in most individuals relatively rarely affects the heart. When it does affect the heart, you basically have cardiac inflammation, uh, which just like any other kind of inflammation, involves the deposition of white blood cells and macrophages uh, inside heart muscle, which can cause edema uh, and can cause secondarily the consequences of inflammation, which might be scarring in the heart or uh, the development of uh, cardiac muscle dysfunction or left ventricular dysfunction. So I guess, uh, you know, with that all in mind, with the scar tissue that may develop with myocarditis, then you're really looking at, uh, especially in the athletic population, somebody who's needing to rely on their cardiovascular system for either endurance or explosive uh, sports. And if their myocardial tissue, their heart tissue is not able to keep up with the demands of the body, then their performance or their ability to train is going to be impacted. That's absolutely correct. So I have good news. The good news for all of our patients and the entire sport community, and in fact, the world in general, is that myocarditis, as I explained, is quite a rare complication of COVID, as it is a rare complication of other kinds of viruses. And in the vast majority of patients, the overwhelming majority of patients, it either does not lead to any permanent scarring, so there's complete recovery. There is inflammation in the heart, but if you repeat the most of the time, the image it's the MRI, the cardiac magnetic resonance imaging, which allows us to make the diagnosis. We, of course, do not do routine cardiac biopsies in young individuals who may have myocarditis. And the MRI abnormalities, which are the current standard of care for diagnosing myocarditis resolve completely. Infrequently, there are patients that are left with a small amount of myocardial scarring, which has a particular kind of pattern on the cardiac MRI that's diagnosable by an MRI expert. The good news is that this minor degree of scarring very rarely leads to permanent left ventricular dysfunction that's meaningful. So it may be the case that there's a little bit of extra collagen in the heart of an athlete, for example, in the rare case that myocarditis does not completely resolve. And this does not necessarily mean, I'm sorry for the double negative, but this does not necessarily mean that their uh, sport um, ability or their maximum VO2 or their ability to do explosive effort is going to be compromised. That would be a relatively uncommon, in fact, a very uncommon complication of myocarditis. Um, do you mind commenting on, you, you, you were just talking about the imaging and MRI um, imaging that and that comes up in some of the papers that um, discuss this topic, and they talk about the gadolinium um, imaging and whether or not that plays a role in um, these cases and um, how we manage them moving forward. I, you started to touch base on that, but just on the uh, differing opinions that are out there regarding that. 
that's a very uh, it's a very important practical consideration. So let me start by saying we don't have a ton of data on the effects on the heart as demonstrated by cardiac MRI in viral illnesses. The original reports, which came out in the spring and summer of 2020, suggested that there was a relatively high incidence of MRI abnormalities in collegiate athletes who had who were COVID positive, with or without symptoms. It turns out that that information now is not nearly as worrisome as we thought. One of the there's there's two reasons for this. So again, I'm uh, emphasizing that this is fortunately a rare problem. One reason was that we, when we delve into the remote literature well before COVID, we see that there are some small but kind of interesting studies that looked at systematic MRI scans in young athletes who had all kinds of viral illnesses like the flu or even the common cold. And we see that there's a non-trivial 10, 20% of young healthy athletes with a common cold have some demonstrable viral, uh, excuse me, some demonstrable MRI abnormalities, and these, of course, are completely reversible. We don't do MRIs to athletes with the flu or the cold. We don't restrict them. We just tell them to kind of chill and take it easy. And when their cold is over, they go back to training. So that's been a pretty safe uh, um, way of doing it for decades. And also, it turns out that athletes who are not ill in whatever way, they're completely healthy, have a certain small but non-zero incidence of MRI abnormalities, which may just be the consequences of a long-term endurance sport. We see this more in middle-aged athletes, and they're of no clinical or biological or prognostic significance. Would you compare that to like when they use the term an athlete heart and some of the changes then that we see on ECGs that they think may just be a consequence of their exercise history and their fitness level? Yeah, that's, that's again, a, a very important point. No, an athlete's heart is something a little bit different. Uh, an athlete's heart, was we, con- we consider there's two kinds of adaptation to in, in sport. Uh, excuse me, two kinds of adaptation to um, uh, physical effort, endurance effort in sport. One is what we call physiological adaptation, so-called athlete's heart. Depends a bit on the sport. I'll come back to that. And the other was what we would call pathological adaptation. So if you have abnormal physiology or abnormal disease combined with sport, you can get what's called abnormal or pathophysiological structural remodeling. The conventional term athlete's heart means the expected normal physiological response to sport. Most of the time, that's uh, primarily left ventricular hypertrophy, just like your biceps get stronger if you lift weights or your quads get stronger if if you do explosive sport with your legs. Your heart gets stronger and thicker when you do endurance sport. This could be any endurance sport. This includes power sports and aerobic sports, running, cycling, swimming, rowing, etc. cetera. Uh, so in all athletes, the heart gets a little larger, the chamber sizes get higher, the wall thickness goes up, and particularly the right ventricle uh, becomes larger and somewhat thicker because now when you're exercising vigorously, you're pumping three to five times your normal cardiac output through your lungs and your right ventricle is a relatively thin walled structure and is required to hypertrophy and compensation. Uh, This then leads to uh, expected abnormalities on an electrocardiogram, which includes left ventricular hypertrophy, sometimes includes very minor STT wave changes. It also results in sinus bradycardia because athletes have increased vagal tone Uh, So these are abnormalities. I shouldn't call them abnormalities. These are findings which are not abnormal for athletes. There's a 
a separate issue, which we might call pathological hypertrophy, which might occur in somebody with underlying disease and maybe more likely if they're an athlete with underlying disease like hypertension or diabetes or cardiomyopathy from other causes. Of course, as a clinician, you will know if your patients have one of these other sort of conditions. So that's physiological adaptation of sport. So that's an athlete's heart. And that's completely different from the consequences on the heart, whether you're an athlete or not an athlete of something like myocarditis. Gotcha. So like, obviously the majority of our listeners um, are recreational athletes. I'm sure there's a couple of professionals that have found this podcast, but you know, for the for the general population, is there really any role for um, cardiac screening uh, for the recreational or amateur athlete, or is it all based on a case by case, uh, you know, scenario, or is it even worthwhile, you know, investigating um, somebody that may or may not have any? you know, cardiovascular or suspicion that there's a myocarditis. And I, I think I can, if I can just add to that, I'm, I'm thinking, I think, Rich, you probably mean in the context of COVID-19 or did you mean more? Okay. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I mean, sure. It's applicable across the board for anybody who's like got myocarditis or pericarditis from a, from any virus, but you know, in context of COVID-19. Uh, so the, the, this is obviously very important. So let's just be practical. The Canadian uh, position paper uh, published with uh, Jimmy McKinney, who's a sports cardiologist from Vancouver, and Nate Molson from Vancouver, and Paul Poirier from Quebec City, and myself, and some others in November of 2020 in the Canadian Journal of Cardiology, outlined what at the time seemed to us to be a reasonable strategy. And I think the information we now have suggests that we were on a reasonable track. And we had a very conservative, if you like, a non-interventionist strategy. And that is, uh, obviously, if somebody's had COVID, we want them at least temporarily for a two-week period not to be doing sport or exercise. It just seems to make sense to recover from the acute illness. Of course, some of COVID athletes will be asymptomatic, and they'll just be discovered to be COVID positive on testing. But insofar as they have some degree of symptoms or we know what the timing of a positive test is, we would recommend a sensible uh, empiric two-week period of no endurance sport and basically lie low and take it easy. Following that, what we recommended was taking a careful history from the athlete. If the athlete has had minimal or no symptoms and they feel fine and they have no chest pain and no shortness of breath and no palpitations and no symptoms suggesting uh, cardiac arrhythmias, then our recommendation was that they can gradually get back to normal physical activity, including uh, vigorous endurance training after about a 14-day uh, hiatus, if you like. Uh, as a practical matter, I wouldn't tell somebody to start doing maximal high-intensity intervals on day 15 after having tested positive, but I tell my athletes to, over a period of about two weeks or so, to get back to kind of full training. Uh, we have some very recent data, as I mentioned earlier, that that supports this kind of approach. Professional athletes, for the reasons that I think all listeners can understand, because now there's the, the scrutiny is much, much higher and the availability of advanced testing is much more easy to obtain. Uh, we recently have about a thousand professional athletes in multiple uh, sports, primarily basketball, football, hockey, soccer, uh, were screened uh, more intensively. And they all received a blood test for troponin done at approximately two weeks to three weeks after the positive uh, PCR test for COVID-19. 
and in a very tiny minority, there was a slight elevation of troponin indicating some degree of muscle inflammation, not necessarily damage because it can be fully reversible. So troponins were positive in a couple of percent of, of these athletes. Echocardiograms showed an abnormality in about one or 2%, primarily pericardial fluid, which would be an evidence for pericarditis. Uh, and uh, a, a very small number had um, abnormalities in their ECG, primarily ST segment elevation or depression. That, so that's about three or 4% of all athletes. The good news is that all those athletes, the three or 4% of these thousand, then went on to have a cardiac MRI. And as I said earlier, three out of the thousand had myocarditis and then were restricted at least temporarily from sport until the myocarditis healed. So if we don't do this uh, more um, aggressive, if you like, uh, evaluation, meaning ECG, troponin, and echocardiogram, which would be kind of standard but more intensive evaluation over and above a history, for example, then we might pick up a few athletes who may have myocarditis, but only three in a thousand will end up having a disorder which would require them to be uh, temporarily uh, restricted from uh, vigorous sport. So you could make the argument that if you have an athlete that has absolutely no symptoms uh, and is feeling fine, then uh, not doing these investigations, you might be exposing the athlete to a three per thousand risk of missing myocarditis. That doesn't necessarily mean they're gonna be in danger. The literature that relates a continuing sport in somebody with myocarditis to long-term risk is very minimal. Uh, we do not know whether that's a problem or not a problem. Uh, there's alarmist literature, which I personally think is way overwrought, that suggests that myocarditis is a common cause for sudden cardiac death. That is not true. It is true that myocarditis can lead to sudden death, but this is a very, very rare phenomenon. So I think it's perfectly reasonable understanding that there's no absolutes, there is no 100% guarantee of anything. It's perfectly reasonable not to investigate athletes unless they had symptoms that suggest that they've had cardiac involvement like dyspnea, shortness of breath, difficulty training, palpitations, chest discomfort, fever, etc. after the initial recovery period. And so to summarize um, what you were just saying, essentially, that if somebody is has had that period of recovery uh, after a positive COVID-19 test, whether they've had symptoms or not, essentially, if they are um, asymptomatic and doing well, the, the likelihood of you picking something up on some of those tests that you discussed is quite low, which is why you're saying it's safe to begin that return to activity process. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Absolutely, yes. Okay. So I, I just want to lower the temperature for the listeners on all of this. There's just two caveats, which I want to repeat. So basically, it's the message is it's pretty safe to exercise and I would worry a lot less than has been the case uh, six or nine months ago. Uh, one is everything I said does not apply to a person who was hospitalized with COVID. We know that people that are hospitalized that have to be admitted to hospital often end up in an intensive care unit may require supplemental oxygen. We're talking sick individuals. This is likely not going to be your young, uh, active, competitive athletes, but there's many middle-aged people that are very athletic and nevertheless get, get hospitalized. If you're in hospital, 
then usually there's going to be some information from the hospital chart. Most of those patients would have had cardiac troponin, which is positive in about a quarter to a third of patients. They may have had an echocardiogram. Those individuals may need to be evaluated somewhat more carefully and more conservatively. And we're talking about now hospitalized patients. And everything I said does not apply to a person that has ongoing symptoms after COVID. So if they have persisting shortness of breath, tachycardia, difficulty training, then obviously they would need more close evaluation. Says we could talk about this for hours. <laughs> There's like so many branches that we could go down. It's like the rabbit. Uh, well, hole. that's what happened to Alice in Wonderland, but we're going to try, stay away from uh, Lewis Carroll in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm glad your name isn't Alice. Um, I can pa- change it if necessary. <laughs> um, Paul, could you comment a little bit on um, some of the uh, variations that are in some of the recommendations that we see between the Canadian papers, some of the American recommendations, um, and and why some of those differences exist? Yes, it's a great uh, question. Obviously, there's cultural uh, issues, there's financial issues, there's legal issues that are going to be different in different countries. The the general, and I'm uh, uh, making a generalizing statement here, the general Canadian perspective, and this is maybe true in politics and in social relations and in other things in Canada, is Canadians, I think, are a little bit less legalistic and a little less uh, uh, defensive, if you like, than some of our colleagues south of the border, or particularly in Europe, where sports cardiology is a very big field, and uh, the sports uh, medical world is tends to be much more aggressive in screening and investigation. The, as long as we all understand that there's no such thing as zero risk, the general Canadian philosophy is to not look for trouble unless trouble finds you. This is true for screening and this is true for care. So we, whenever I see an athlete in my sports cardiology practice, I basically uh, uh, remind them that at the end of the day, what they wish to do depends on their own values and preferences. We talk about, a bit about the risks. The risks are never going to be zero, but the general Canadian attitude is to be uh, conservative, if you like, with respect to what we think of as over-investigation and over-restriction. In the United States, the added complexity are rules, for example, in the NCAA, which are extremely legalistic. Uh, these athletes are there on scholarships. The, the, the athletes kind of have a, a future in professional sport in many cases. Universities make lots of money from their university athletes. Pro sports, obviously, it's a big deal in Canada, but it's an even bigger deal in the United States. So as soon as there's a financial incentive, and as soon as there is some other incentive to investigate athletes because of the medical legal environment, then additional considerations come into play, which is why this is my belief. This is why, at least in some places in the United States, uh, sports medicine centers tend to be much more aggressive, if you like, in investigation uh, and in doing lots of testing, including MRIs. There is now a general agreement with respect to MRIs, for example, that it is not recommended to do uh, an MRI in every athlete who has had a COVID, for example. This is different from early recommendations, which recommended that this might be a good thing. The problem, of course, in over-investigation, this is true for all tests, including ECGs, 
uh, echocardiograms, MRIs. There's going to be lots of false positives. It requires a certain amount of expertise to interpret these advanced imaging tests. And athletes may find themselves inappropriately investigated and inappropriately restricted from sports because of what we call false positive investigations. So I'm not trying to say that we don't investigate at all in Canada, but we tend to take a, a rather more a careful view and look at the risks as well as the benefits of investigation. Well, I do think it's great that you highlight that because uh, some of us that do work with higher level athletes, whether they might be um, amateur, but competing at a national, international level, um, sometimes also have professional careers in the sports that they participate in. So um, some of us as providers are often navigating the those two situations between what they may have um, required and recommended on behalf of their professional organization or the country that they're living in, and then what we might recommend as um, Canadian healthcare providers and people working in the field from that side of things. So thank you for um, highlighting yeah. that. If I may, that you know, maybe we can do another podcast on this. This is an extremely complicated field because it involves social, legal, economic and philosophical discussions about the risk of sport in individuals who either make a living doing sport or whose future uh, depends on the, their potential for being professional athletes or whose values and preferences are such that sports are extremely important to them and they can't imagine living without sport. So it's a, it's a very difficult conversation because we're asking uh, f- both caregivers and athletes not only to weigh the risks and benefits of continued sport, but the consequences of some uh, adverse event. It's obviously going to be very different in a, an amateur athlete, the consequences of uh, restriction from sport uh, versus in a, in a professional athlete or somebody who makes their living during sport. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so for a, a lot of us work in primary care, sport and exercise medicine settings with people that don't identify themselves as athletes, although they, you could argue they are all athletes in their own way. Um, if someone is um, recovered from a COVID-19 infection um, or has had a positive test, and they recommend a return to activity protocol. Um, do you have any like general suggestions or um, recommendations in that process that they should be assessing in terms of the intensity of their work? Or um, are we talking about somebody who has actually had cardiac involvement, or without, or would not known? Uh, great question. No, I guess I would say without cardiac involvement because. A lot of us have those patients, especially now that have had a COVID-19 uh, positive test that either had mild symptoms, cold-like symptoms, et cetera, or no symptoms at all, but they do come to us or to their family physicians asking what they can or cannot do and how quickly they can do that. And um, if yeah. you have any uh, any highlights on some some suggestions, that would be great. Okay. There is no perfect recipe for how quickly and how intensively a moderate recreational athlete can get back to their pre-COVID type of exercise. A sensible approach might be to always keep symptoms in mind. I tell my athletes as an approximation, after two weeks of abstinence from uh, vigorous exercise, or really more than just walking around, if you like, and once they are no longer symptomatic, that's really important. If somebody after two weeks of getting COVID is still short of breath or tired or feels unwell, then obviously they should wait. Once they feel fine, they can get back to their 
previous level of activity relatively gradually. I tell them just on an empiric basis, spend the first week at exercising at no more than 70 to 80% of your maximum heart rate or uh, on your effort scale at sort of moderate to moderately vigorous, but not all out and not doing high intensity intervals. And over the subsequent two weeks to get back to whatever it is that you were doing, depending on how vigorous your exercise was. That's great. Thank you very much. Because I think in practical terms, a lot of people that will be listening to the podcast see far more of those types of people that have those questions. And yeah. Well, I think we're over our uh, commute uh, timeline of uh, about 30 minutes to so people can um, uh, get off and get to work or, you know, get on to putting their kids to bed, whatever they have to do. But, you know, this was like super amazing and, you know, very enlightening, uh, lots of great research. And I'm going to take you up on the offer to have you back at some point to talk about some more sports cardiology uh, topics. And um, this was, uh, you know, obviously very timely, especially with the most recent journal uh, article that you highlighted in JAMA Cardiology. Um, and we'll put a link to that article in um, the uh, podcast description. But uh, Paul, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to uh, join Lee and I for uh, for this. Uh, for thank this you discussion. so much. It's a delight to speak to the Canadian sports community, and I wish everybody well. And uh, as springtime comes, happy workouts. Thank you very much.